This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Thanks for downloading the Let's Talk About Suicide podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's lost a loved one to suicide, and we'll be focusing on the LGBTIQA plus communities. As the name suggests, this podcast discusses issues around suicide, which can be a tough subject to talk about, but it's important that we do. We want to provide support to people who are bereaved by suicide, and let people talk about it openly. In all of our discussions, we'll be conscious to use the appropriate language. Your self-care is important. And listening to this podcast may raise issues for you. And if this is the case, we'd encourage you to contact one of the following services in Australia. You can call QLife on 1800 184 527 or the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. And you can find all of these contact details on the JOY website at joy.org.au slash let's talk. This JOY podcast is produced in association with Support After Suicide, a program of Jesuit social services that provides support to people who have been bereaved by suicide, and Switchboard Victoria, which provides peer-driven support services for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and gender diverse, intersex, queer and asexual people, their families, allies and communities. We would also like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wandery people of the Kulin Nation, and we'd like to pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to extend our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are listening. If you're listening to this podcast anywhere in Australia, you are on Aboriginal land. Always was, always will be. Welcome to this episode of Let's Talk About Suicide. My name is Hamish Blunk, and I'm your host for this podcast. Also guiding you through each of our episodes are our two wonderful experts, Joe Ball, who is the CEO of Switchboard Victoria. They are also an LGBTIQA plus community leader and use the pronouns they, them. And Dr. Louise Flynn, who is a psychologist and also the manager of Support After Suicide. We'll also hear from four brave people who we've talked to about their experience with losing a loved one to suicide. Bo, Lara, Peter, and Alice. In this episode, we're going to talk more about how you can support a person who has lost someone to suicide. If you haven't yet listened to the previous episode, episode 11, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that one first. Otherwise, you'll miss part one of this conversation. If you're supporting a person who has lost someone to suicide, it can be helpful to understand more about suicide and how it is different from other causes of death and what that means for the person grieving. Here's Louise. If it's possible, it's a good idea to just be aware of the depth of grief, that there's also trauma involved, that it's complex when someone takes their own life. It does leave behind so many questions, so many experiences like guilt, and also that the person might actually be feeling the effects of stigma. They might actually be feeling 
that this reflects on them and that other people might be thinking of them differently now that this has happened in their life. So having a sensitivity to the the kind of breadth of that experience and being really, um, yeah, being sensitive to that, I, I think is one way to be helpful, particularly after a suicide death, and really to make quite a lot of effort to really listen to people and listen to what their experience is. We can reassure people that actually losing to someone to suicide is a very complex experience and also it does take longer than people actually realise. If you know someone who has lost someone to suicide, it is helpful to understand, as Louise said, that it is complex and it does take a very long time to grieve. People who have not lost someone to suicide may not realise this, as Alice experienced. Kind of like two months after she died, I mentioned that I had had a tough weekend about it. Um, And he kind of looked at me completely genuinely bemused, I think, and sort of was like, oh, still? Um, and, And I think that reaction that I got from a few people, I just didn't appreciate. It was not helpful. Um often not coming from a bad place, but the implication that I was um, taking it too hard or that I was, I guess, being a bit weak or a bit more needy in my grief than would be expected. It's not uncommon for people to feel like their reactions are too much or they're taking too long or that they're somehow abnormal. Uh, Like Alice was talking about there, but um, I can reassure you that it is something that is very complex. It's a significant blow to a person or an organisation and it's a very lengthy period of time to recover. As you might recall, Joe, who is the CEO of Switchboard Victoria, which is an LGBTIQA plus peer-driven support service, was the manager and friend of Ingrid who suicided. This relationship and the fact that the work at Switchboard Victoria is very focused on suicide prevention meant that Joe's grieving and the grieving of that community has been very complex. In my experience, also like having a suicide in the workplace has a really specific, is different to other deaths. Um, she had a really strong presence in the workplace. She was very loved by all of us and we were a very close-knit community of people Losing Ingrid, my staff member and my staff's colleague to suicide had a really profound impact on us for on multiple, multiple layers. One was that we were all friends and so we lost someone very dear to us that we had a deep and profound friendship with. But also at Switchboard, we're a suicide prevention organisation And she was someone who was involved in suicide prevention. And I feel like so much of the work that we do at Switchboard is, you know, we have to, we have a lot of laughter and a lot of jokes. And Ingrid was part of that and really buffering. We made a real buffer for each other. We we deal with such serious issues all the time. And as a community and as a staffing community, I feel like we really buffered each other. And I felt like she was really in to, for her to suicide when we were such a tight community working in suicide prevention, I feel like we lost one of our own to the very thing that we're here to prevent. 
Something we always did from the very beginning was we were very open. I was very open as a leader and we were very open as a staff team and we were very open as a community to the fact that she had died by suicide because we strongly believed that we did not want to stigmatise it and we believed that it would bring no good to pretend that she had died any other way. We were never going to do that. It never even entered our, our, our mind. And I think that was something really supportive that we did for our community and something we all did together, which was to be able to talk about that it was suicide. People know, like, because it's how you don't talk about it. And I just wanted to fill those silences with truth. And I think they were real. that was really, really important because the silence where someone says she died unexpectedly but you don't go and say anything else people go oh okay is that suicide and people wonder if it's suicide and we quickly filled up that space and just said no it was by suicide and I think that was a really really important thing that we just did organically and something that I think other people should consider what I think was really helpful in the support that we received as individuals and as organisation is how the community rallied around us. And I think that was an important, lots of other LGBTI organisations, you know, reached out to us. And some of the things that were, people may not have realised how significant they were. Like a lot of people sent us flowers and I, that felt really, to send that to the workplace felt really meaningful because certainly her parents I mean we sent flowers to her parents and she and people sent you know people sent flowers to her her friends and that kind of things but but to have flowers sent to us made us feel like yeah like people really saw us saw what we were going through and at, at some point like I could barely get to my computer for the amount of flowers that were in there but I never for one moment like didn't want them to be there I felt like that sort of stuff was really and the cards that people sent just I felt those moments recognised how deep it was. Something I encountered a lot when I told people that Nick suicided was that they immediately told me their story about someone they knew who suicided. In these cases, it was mostly someone who wasn't close to them, but they would tell me, unprompted, about the suicide, including sometimes the method. I found this really confronting, especially if it was the same method. I think what they were trying to say is that they knew what I was going through, but for me it didn't feel this way. Here's Louise talking about when and how it might be appropriate to share these kind of stories. Sharing experiences and sharing stories with other people can actually be incredibly helpful, but it's more about the timing of that and the kind of motivation for it. If someone's really very um, early in their bereavement, they may not be ready to hear other people's stories. It just might be too soon for them to take it in. There can certainly come a time when it's incredibly helpful to hear how other people experienced their loss to suicide. Certain times it's too soon. That's the confusion. And that is where people feel like, yes, we need to talk about suicide. So therefore, we're going to talk about how the person died. And I think that's the message we've got to say, yes, we've got to talk about suicide, but we have to talk about it safely. And there's certain things around suicide that are not useful to talk about. It's definitely, I think it's it's part of trauma response, right? Is that, you know, that when people know that you have lost someone to suicide, you might trigger them. 
And so what they then do is just sort of say to you, oh, wow, well, I lost somebody this way and that way. This is how they, this is how they suicided. And it's sort of almost knee-jerk. But I feel like wherever possible, people should resist that because what I think it throws you immediately into is the moment that the person died. Because what you don't realise is the, the actual scenario you might be giving to someone is a new traumatic visual. You've already got your own traumatic story video going on in your head of, of the person you lost and then someone sharing you their video and it's like I, you don't need any more visuals. You've already got a lot and, you know, people should try and contain them. It could be very close to your own experience as well, which is even more triggering. Exactly, exactly. You would have heard us talk about the importance of seeking support when you're grieving. Things like calling a helpline, finding a professional counsellor, or attending group therapy sessions. For many, this can be a really daunting task. Taking that step might make you feel vulnerable. For LGBTIQA people, this can be even more of an issue. Trying to find a counsellor or a group that is LGBTIQA friendly can be difficult. This was Bo's experience when attending a group session for people bereaved by suicide. I guess how I felt going into the group sessions, um, I, I remember, you know, we all went around the room, we introduced ourselves and and also, you know, the name of the person we had lost as well. And uh, that started to go around, around the room and I was sitting there, I'm going, oh, oh dear, oh dear, I'm, you know, gay and there's all these women and, and well, straight women and stuff. I felt nervous for some reason about, saying Jeff's name because me being a gay man and then, you know, saying my partner was also um, male, um, I didn't know how how they received that. But um, so I found that really difficult. So when it got to me, I um, I said, hi, my name is Bo and I lost my partner, you know, um, six months ago. Or, but I, I didn't say name. So I thought, okay, great. I got, I got out of that. I don't have to but, you know, now I think I'm like, I shouldn't have been um, afraid to admit that, you know, I have lost somebody just, just like you guys have and somebody I love very much. It just so happens that they are also males, so it's a same-sex relationship. After I got more comfortable with going to these group sessions, I, of course, you know, said, you know, I lost Jeff and... And um, they were great. They were all very supportive. What we're hearing there is Bo talking about a perceived notion of discrimination and that, that he has a perception that he's going to be discriminated against when he goes to a group. This is a real thing that queer people go through all the time. It's because of historical and current discrimination that people have had a bad experience in their life or they know that people can be discriminatory through a range of facts that have happened throughout their life and they're worried that in this new current situation they're going to be discriminated against and th- and he's just not willing to take the chance in that first group he's really worried about taking that chance because the the um the risk is so high he's gone there he wants help and in order to get help he's sort of thinking well if someone is really horrible to me about this and they don't accept me then that's just going to traumatize me more so he takes the what he sees as the easy road of like I'm going to sort of try and get away with with not not 
not sharing that part of myself. But what we know is that when we repress parts of our identity, you know, we we hold back a part of ourselves and holding back that part of ourselves means that we are not being authentic. And in a peer group setting, that's going to limit our ability to heal and recover. However, the responsibility on bo- is not on Bo. We do need to make our spaces safer. We need to make suicide bereavement spaces safer for people, support groups safer. And that means having explicit kind of ways of talking about how this space is is open to everybody and you know I think that Bo sort of takes all the responsibility on his own shoulders but it's not his responsibility it's a responsibility of the people who are cohering the group um, the organization that's running the group that is all it's a collective responsibility to make sure that people are safe when they're seeking support a lot of the organizations in the suicide prevention and suicide support space are run by religious organizations and many of them do an amazing job. And so when you're accessing that service, you can be worried, as a queer person, you can be worried that you're going to get a level of discrimination because the religious organisation that's now running it might have historically, for example, been involved in promoting the no vote in the postal survey or they might have had discriminatory policies. They might even have current discriminatory policies, which doesn't mean that the service you're going to get on that day is going to be discriminatory, but it's an idea that you're like, oh, well, what's behind this service is discriminatory. And I think um, that's what it means to have perceived discrimination. And I think that's absolutely legitimate. Like what I would reach out to Bo and say is like, I don't blame you, mate, like for feeling that way. I can really relate to it. Like I can understand that you would feel that way and but don't take all the blame for that. Yeah, and, and that was certainly my expectations when I went, went along to one of these services as well. But my experience, and I think Bo was alluding to that as well, is that that actually wasn't the experience he had when he got into that support group, that it was a supportive area. So it shouldn't necessarily be a barrier or a prevention for going and accessing support. But the thing is it might stop. We know that, you know, there's a, in 2019, there was a study called LGBTI Lives in Crisis, which is about, it's actually a survey between Lifeline and Latrobe University. And what the survey concludes is that 71% of LGBTI people, when in crisis, and they're talking, they are talking about suicide here, but when they're in crisis, 71% of people don't seek crisis supports. Mm. Even though out of that 71, 63% of those people know about a crisis service. People are suffering and feeling like they can't reach out because they're worried about the service they're going to get. And if we go back and talk about statistics in the LGBTIQA community, um, suicide attempts are statistically higher than the rest of the community. Do we need to talk about suicide in a different way within our communities? Yes, And we need to talk about the fact that because of discrimination, historical and current and oppression, that LGBTIQA plus people are more overrepresented in what we know are the triggers of of poor mental health, depression, anxiety and suicidality. Because if you do receive significant discrimination which our community certainly has and does then you are going to you know have the effects of poor mental health so i think we need to talk about kind of the macro causes of poor mental health in the lgbtiqa plus community that's that's one thing but i think we also need to talk about suicide prevention in in different ways um when we talk about i think that 
a lot of the time people can't relate in the LGBTIQA plus community. They can't relate to mainstream suicide prevention campaigns for a range of reasons because they don't visually see themselves represented. They don't have language that they see themselves represented in. And so there's a, there's a range of things we need to do to make our services more accessible and we need to run specialist LGBTI QA plus suicide prevention. There is also another component which is that in our community we know that suicide is high, we know, know that suicidality is high and we know that poor mental health is high and what that can lead to is a bit of a normalisation in our community where we can actually sort of accept in some ways, poor mental health. Definitely when I was growing up, there was kind of a concept that you would sit around with your friends and you'd all tell each other quite horrific coming out stories to each other. And that was a rite of passage because everybody had one. You know, I grew up in Queensland and in my teenage years, it was illegal to be homosexual. Um, It was illegal until 1991 in Queensland. And so I feel like there was this kind of normalisation of of trauma and depression and I think there's nothing normal about that really it's it you know we deserve better than that as a community and I think but we need to have that in mind when we're thinking about the LGBTIQA plus community is we may not be as attuned to the warning signs because we live in a bit bit more where those warning signs are more present in the everyday. A behaviour that might cause you concern when you're supporting a person who has lost someone to suicide is that they may be repeatedly asking those what-if questions and continually searching for answers. It's like going down a rabbit hole. If you've lost someone to suicide yourself, you might identify this in your own behaviour. I certainly can, as can Lara. I definitely found myself looping around and around thoughts and just ruminating constantly, basically, on... Ingrid's last month and the day that I found Ingrid and also the time in hospital as well all of the everything needed to be filled in so until my mind got that clear narrative of what had happened the day before the day all of that as much as possible because of course I'll never know everything 100% but as much as I could know I needed to know so until I did have everything filled in, my mind was just going around and around and around. Once it was filled in, it still went around and around and around. But slowly over time, it's, it's, I didn't live constantly in that ruminating her last weeks and her last day. I think what really helped with that was my support after suicide counsellor. Just let me know that that's very normal with a suicide, that, that that's going to happen. And so... I I probably went fairly easy on myself with it um, and knew that that was part of the process, really. In saying that, I still sometimes now have experiences where I will get a little bit stuck in that and have to bring myself out of it. Lara's talking there about what she says there is she had a need to know. She wanted um, to develop a clear narrative, a kind of a clear sequence of events about what happened. And um, so she describes herself as ruminating and going over and over some of the details. She wanted to fill in those details. 
And so that's why sometimes people um, repeatedly talk through certain things or um, go over and over certain experiences or the sequence of events. We don't need to be worried when someone repeatedly goes over um, details or is searching for some of the details. They're doing what Lara's doing there, which is developing a clear narrative. And the effect of that clear narrative is for her to feel more settled, actually, about what happened. She's got a deeper sort of knowing and understanding. So in terms of supporting someone, we can actually support that activity. And rather than seeing it as morbid or useless or tedious is to allow someone to do that. I think it's so important to allow people the repetition when they need to do that. However, there does come a point where I think it's really important that people take that offline with their loved ones and go and book yourself into counselling because I think when you're in it, all you want to do is talk about it all the time. And I certainly got myself into a position where I was talking about it all day at work and then I was coming home and talking about it all night at home with my partner. And she had a range of things that she wanted to talk to me about and needed to talk to me about, but I was just so full of the suicide and and what I was doing at work about it. And then when I was coming home, I wanted to talk about what I was was personally feeling about it. And at some point, you know, she rightly said to me, I can't talk about this anymore. So when you're supporting someone, you need to know it's okay that you can ask them to go and speak to someone else about it. That yes, you need to listen, but don't martyr yourself over that because you are a person with wants and needs as well. And a, and a full emotional world as well. And the temptation can be that you want to be all those things to that person, but I think there's, yes, you need to listen, but know that it's okay. It's totally fine to say, okay, now, how about you get some counselling? Yeah, that's a very good point. If you are supporting someone, um, the first thing you need to do actually is also look after yourself. And as Joe says there, it's good to be clear about what you can and can't do. One of the analogies we often use is um, in the aircraft when um, when the stewards are giving you the safety talk at the beginning and they say if the um, oxygen masks come down, put it on yourself first before you put it on anyone else. That's kind of a good analogy really. If you're supporting someone else, you need to actually be very much looking after yourself and, as I said, being clear about what you you can do and what you're not able to do. And that's where you can go back to the circle of support is to look at, is to go back and think about who's supporting you. You can't expect the person you're supporting who's more towards the centre of the circle to be a mutual support to you, but you have needs. And most likely in, in that you knew the person who suicided by proximity in some kind of way if you're a support to somebody who has lost someone. But go back to the circle and think who further out of the circle can support me. Talking about the circle of support again is a really great way to wrap up these two episodes where we've talked about how you can support a person who has lost someone to suicide. But I'd like to leave the last word to Peter 
who sums up one of the most important things you can do when you're supporting someone. Talking. I think, I think talking about it does help me to deal with it a little bit better. And the statistics show too that, you know, people who are bereaved by suicide aren't, I think, more likely to, to, to take their own life as a result of that too. And that's just not fair. And that just shouldn't happen because there are better ways in which to deal with problems, you know, and one of them is to talk about it. In the next episode of Let's Talk About Suicide, we'll be talking about the funeral, an obviously difficult time. So please join me for that. But before you go, it's that part of the episode where I share with you some things that the people we interviewed with lived experience did to help them with their grief, some things they did for their self-care. There are some practical and helpful things that you might consider doing right now, or maybe just store in the back of your mind for later to help you through your bereavement. This one's from Bo. Another thing that um, helps me um, is if I'm finding it particularly hard to get to sleep uh, some nights, because whether my I'm just my head swimming in thoughts, or I've just I'm just stressed from work or depressed from other things um, I just put on some background like uh, music or, or sounds nature um, and I just have that going um, until I just fall asleep um, and it works for me so yeah it's um, I guess a form of meditation I suppose uh, it just helps me really relax You can download the other episodes in this series from joy.org.au slash let's talk or look for them in your podcast feed. And you can also download the full-length interviews with the courageous people who have shared their own stories. Thanks to our amazing experts, Joe Ball from Switchboard Victoria and Louise Flynn from Support After Suicide. And also to the people we've interviewed with lived experience, Alice, Bo, Lara and Peter. Let's Talk About Suicide is produced and presented by me, Hamish Blunk. Editorial assistance by Joy Program Director, Rachel Tyler-Jones. And technical help from Jack Trainor, Joy Production Manager. If you'd like to contact the show, you can email us at letstalk at joy.org.au. But if you need to talk to somebody right now, or are in crisis, please contact one of the following services in Australia. QLife on 1800 184 527. Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. You can find all of these contact details on the JOY website at joy.org.au slash let's talk. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.